0: Hello, listeners. We had a great time recording this episode, and we were joined by the awesome Tyler Austin, who brought a lot to the discussion. We can't wait for you to hear it. However, we had a lot to say. So much, in fact, we had to split this episode into two parts. So enjoy part one and stay tuned for part two when we continue our deep dive into the Never Season 1, Episode 1 to 6 recap.
1: This is a Culture Inject production.
0: Welcome back to The Nevers Podcast, a podcast dedicated to the discussion and dissection of every episode of Joss Whedon's HBO series, The Nevers. This week, we're back to discuss the first half of season one and anything new we gleaned from our rewatch.
2: So before we get into the good stuff, we'd like to remind you to visit us at hbothenevers.com as well as theneverspodcast.com and all over social media, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram and YouTube at HBOTheNevers. I'm Chirag, and as you've already heard, I'm joined by my co-host, Laura. Today, we have a guest joining us, but we'll get to that momentarily.
0: If you enjoy our podcast, we'd greatly appreciate it if you left us a rating or review, or both, on Apple Podcasts. Reviews help our podcasts move up the charts and get seen or heard by more people. We have a few new reviews to read. So, Our first one's from Kathy Bolton. Just wanted to let you know, you're my first podcast. I am so happy I found you because listening to your analysis of the show brings it to a whole new level. Anyway, hope to see you on the other side of the break for the next six episodes. I give your podcast a 10. So thank you very much, Kathy Bolton.
2: Thank you. Uh, we have another one from Becca8753902 via Apple Podcasts. Definitely worth your time. Very thoughtful analysis of the series with lots of interesting twists and turns as the hosts run through each episode, will enhance your viewing and give you a real appreciation of what the creators of The Nevers have given us. All episodes are worth a listen, no matter where you are in the series. Thank you, Becca.
0: Robbins too via Apple Podcasts says, 5 stars, bed, uh, best podcast. If you love the show, you will love this podcast. This podcast is amazing, and I look forward to it as much as I do the actual show. I go back and watch the show a second time after listening to the podcast, and it makes it even better, as I can piece things together thanks to the brilliant thinking of the hosts. And I think it's great that they read the letters and play recordings from the listeners. So thank you so much. Uh, Thank you, Robins2.
2: And then we have from Tabor L K via Apple Podcasts, Lucid and Insightful. Thanks for our enriching, sorry, thanks for enriching our experience of The Nevers, and thank you for listening, appreciate it. So a little bit about the podcast, you can download and stream it on Apple Podcasts, Google, and Spotify, and SoundCloud, YouTube, and you can subscribe. Comments, questions, or topic suggestions, you can send to Podcast at gmail.com.
0: Uh, So a little bit of news for this week. Uh, We have a few announcements. So we have surpassed 23,000 downloads this month. 23,000. That's huge. So thank you. Thank you for downloading the podcast, sharing it with your friends and for all of the positive feedback that you've been sending our way. We really appreciate it and we appreciate you. We'll be interviewing Emmy and BAFTA award-winning costume designer and the costume designer for The Nevers, Michelle Clapton, for an upcoming episode of In Conversation With. If you have any questions for Michelle, email them to us at theneverspodcast at gmail.com and we'll ask them on your behalf. Uh, So for a discussion this large, we had to bring in some backup. We're joined by YouTuber Tyler Austin. Uh, Tyler's also been reviewing The Nevers and you can hear his reviews on his YouTube channel. Just search Tyler Austin, The Nevers. Um, So thank you for joining us uh, for our discussion today.
3: Yeah, thank you so much for having me. I'm excited to Uh, be here.
0: uh, We know from your reviews that you're a fan of The Weedonverse, so what's your favourite series?
3: What a loaded question. I mean, it probably (laughs) probably has to go to Buffy just because it is the longest and I have the most nostalgia for it. (laughs) Definitely. Probably followed Mm -hmm. by Firefly, then Angel, then Dollhouse. But I love all what? my children equally.
2: Man, that really hits a sore spot when you say because it's the longest, because for me, my favorite is Firefly because, no, I guess not because it's the shortest. That just happened to be the case. But <laughs>
3: <laughs> Well, that, I mean, listen, I was stressing over this question for a long time. I was like, I don't know. I love them all for different reasons. But yeah, I think the reason I picked P- Buffy over Firefly is, is simply because of that.
2: So where does this show rank in the list of uh, other Weed Inverse shows for you?
3: Right now I'm kind of on a little bit of a high, so I'd put it right after Buffy, probably and before Firefly, but like right on par with Firefly for me. Probably. <laughs> I, I praise. Yeah, I I enjoy it a lot. What can I say?
2: <laughs> what what are your what are your other rankings? Like uh, I think we have so we have the Nevers, Firefly, Buffy, uh, Angel, Dollhouse. Am I missing anything? Those are the five shows, right?
3: Those are the five shows,
2: yeah. Okay, so what like what would be your full ranking then?
3: Probably Buffy, followed by the Nevers, and Firefly, but that's a close tie. Then Angel, then Dollhouse, probably. But it also
2: hurts to put Dollhouse last.
0: I was going to oh. say that. I feel sorry for Dollhouse being last, because I love Dollhouse, but then when you're ranking things... <laughs>
2: It's a bit of a Cinderella isn't a it, dollhouse. It's like the stepchild that doesn't doesn't really get the attention. We just keep it in the keep it in the closet. You got to sweep the closet.
3: Absolutely. Yeah, it's funny. I recently rewatched it when I was sitting home in quarantine and like I loved it even more. It was the second time mm-hmm. I had rewatched it since it aired on TV. So it's that one is always changing places in the in the rating system for me for sure
2: that's incredible and i just wanted to mention this as i as a kind of like a psa a fair warning i was uh, and i know this is a recap of all the the first half of the season but like i i kind of like i'm physically unable to do a do rewatches and uh, i i think maybe it's just like i don't like to retread old ground with the exception of firefly i've seen that so many times but i have for the nevers i've skimmed I haven't done a full rewatch, but I have skimmed. And by the way, Tyler, I love I love your reviews and how thorough and meticulous you get. So I feel like uh, I'm just going to ride your coattails on this one. Oh, thank, thank you for joining us today. <laughs> thank you. And uh, I look forward to discussing it with you. Oh, me too. I'm excited.
0: Uh, but before we do, we have a few letters to answer that our listeners have written to us that we didn't have a chance to address in our previous episodes. Uh, the first letter is from Sarah Smith, who wrote in two weeks ago. Uh, she wrote, Hi guys, I've never watched a show and listened to the podcast at the same time. It brings so much more depth to in, uh, to the watching of each episode. I love being part of the fan community. Uh, thank you for all your insights. I found that Amalia and Horatio's affair was a bit unexpected in episode 5. I feel like it came out of nowhere, but I have a theory now. I felt like Amalia's attitude changed in this last episode. She seemed like a weight had been lifted off her shoulders, which after hearing she hadn't been forgotten by her people makes sense. She now has hope and a mission again. I didn't pick up the time gap between episodes until I listened to the podcast this week. Uh, I don't think that they were together prior to the message from Myrtle, but having her sense of purpose back again, she began to open herself up uh, to those around her letting herself give in to her feelings for Horatio that were there under the surface. Thanks, guys. Uh, thank you, Sarah.
2: That's a bit of an older question, right? Yes,
0: yeah, so this is from a couple weeks ago, so after we first see them back together, which I think it was quite sudden because it was during the... It was parallel to them talking about the hanging, wasn't it?
3: Yes, and they, it the, was actually... The- yeah, and it was also in um episode five, so it was right after... Uh, it was like the first time they started dropping Galanthi a lot.
2: Right. But then in episode six, we found out that they've really like they were they've been together from their hospital days, you know, like they they were they were like health carrying around in the triages and whatnot.
3: Oh, yeah. Uh, I mean, speaking speaking of the Horatio True thing, it was really funny because a lot of people uh, they have a conversation on like a staircase at one point where True says something like, I'm sorry, I'm your mistake. Right. And. I was so adamant to the people I was watching with that, like, I was like, I don't think that they were in a relationship together or something like that happened. So I I guess it has been there the entire time. But yes, it does. It does feel like it kind of comes out of nowhere.
2: She hmm. kind of hedged her bets in that scene too cuz she was like I'm sorry that I was almost your mistake and then he said I'm so glad I walked away or something like that. Maybe I'm misremembering, but it like in that in that scene I interpreted it as they almost got together but didn't really, but then in episode 6 with the flashback we saw they totally got together. Mm-hmm. Like they were yeah. <laughs> they were really getting it on.
3: Yeah, the definition of almost a mistake there is very very wide. <laughs>
2: Yeah, I don't think infidelity is covered by insurance, by the way, so I feel like they're going to pay a a hefty karmic price at some point. Absolutely. Maybe in the second part of the season. Okay, so uh, let's move on to our next uh, letter. So we have it from Xavier B., who left a comment on our YouTube video reviewing episode four. He wrote, Really surprised how fast this show is moving along first episode they show the ship or alien or whatever it is that gave everyone their turns in the third we get the big showdown with the beggar king strongman by the fourth we get the ship uh slash alien is alive and needing help uh so used to the way that whedon has to do shows before on network tv where it was 24 episodes good episodes with character development but a lot of fillers to tell a story that that wouldn't take long So HBO lets him get straight to it, and I really like that. The whole experience is really bittersweet for obvious reasons. That's very true. Yeah, I I think that's true. It feels like a correction was made after what happened with Firefly. You know, like so many, like Shepard Book, for example, his secrets and his backstory were held so close to the chest that in the structure that network TV operates, we just... Never really got to see that character flushed out. And a lot of potential just... That was teased, but flushed down the toilet. So it was like a Nara secret, the Reva reveal. Um, So it definitely, in this one, it feels more fast-tracked. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, like Mary's assassination, like who was responsible for that? That question got answered so... Like in such a straightforward way, so rapidly. Mm. I, I thought that would be something we just kind of have to chew chew over and uh, like figure out for a while but they just you know they revealed that
0: yeah I'm kind of glad that it's uh, so fast paced there's certain shows I don't know like lost or something you know they went for seasons and seasons and not until the last episode do you actually find out what was going on and I can't just can't hang around for all that I'm just kind of like no because half the time I feel like the writers aren't even sure and they're just kind of taking it as long as the studio would give them money to make TV. Whereas with something like this, it's kind of like more like a passion project. They know where the story is going. They know exactly what's going to happen. And then it makes me more kind of inclined to watch it because if the creators believe in the story, then you're going to believe yeah, in I totally it more. I totally
3: agree with that. And it's funny you mentioned the Lost thing because I'm also a very big Lost fan. And that's one of the issues that I have with it is how long it kind of takes them to get to the point, which I know like production stuff got in the way with that, but uh. One of the things I kept saying in my YouTube videos was The Nevers has done so well because I, I feel like subconsciously I can trust where the where the creators are taking us because they do do these things where, you know, they'll they'll hint at this crazy mystery and maybe have a random line that you only tune into if you're paying attention or if you're like, hey, that's out of the ordinary, and then sort of answer it a lot quicker than you were expecting, which I think instills this sense of trust. Like, you're like, okay, good. You're not just keeping me along for the answer the answer isn't as important you know as even though the answer is important if you understand what i'm saying
0: yeah yeah like the the answer to a, this big mystery isn't the reason you're watching the show you're watching it for the characters and the story as a whole which mm-hmm. is which is nice yeah um so Mo Favo at Mo Favo 33 says on Twitter um upon rewatch just realized Malady's murder victims were all doctors of psychiatry and she went to the opera to kill the doctor that Lavinia was speaking with before the opera started when Malady said go ahead kill the angel that is who was shot first so thank you Mo Favo I didn't realize this until after I've read this and I went back and watched it again for uh for this recording and uh yeah, she's totally there with a doctor, and that does happen. <laughs>
2: yeah, I wanna, uh, I wanna touch on this a little bit, uh, a little bit later on. But I think Jung and Freud were palling around in the late 1800s, so I feel like if only Sarah had found the right doctor, instead of getting lobotomized, she could have just, you know, like had her dreams interpreted or like like Freud would have just told her that the glowing phallic ship was like an elaborate mm-hmm. sexual fantasy and that, <laughs> and then he would have blacked out from cocaine fatigue but <laughs> fun fact by the way fun fact Sigmund Freud's mother's name was Amalia Freud wow <laughs> huh yep. i didn't know coincidence <laughs> probably <laughs> 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 all right next up we have an email from Sue Um, this one's a while back. So this is episode two. She she says, I just found out about your podcast episodes and love them. I was catching up and one of Laura's comments was about Malady being insane because she was actually an alien stranded there. I can recall reading a story several years ago. About a team whose job it was to rescue observers of alien societies who had become so immersed into the alien society that they no longer realized they were not a part of it. Interesting correlation. I wish I could remember the name of the story because they had a specific term for when this occurred, but sadly I don't. Thank you, Sue. Uh,
0: Laura, any thoughts? Yeah, I mean, so now we know she's not an alien. But I think it was a valid point, And I think it still stands in terms of the fact that, you know, she knows more than we – I even think now, actually, and there's points that I'll come at later on. But I still think she knows more than we know she knows. Um, yeah, like I said at that point, it, just imagine being in that situation. You're the, the one person that kind of knows the truth or at least that something happened. Yeah, and then I think I made the correlation to Attack on Titan for any anime watchers, because in that there's like a soldier and they're placed within um a different society and one of them goes a little bit nuts because he kind of he can't tell the difference between his lives now. He's kind of like becomes so immersed in this new life that he kind of forgets who he was and what his purpose was there, which is very um similar to what Sue is saying. So thank you, Sue.
3: Yeah, interesting. That's cool. I'm still trying to figure malady out. <laughs> completely. <laughs>
2: yeah, I think we all are. Right. Uh I feel like I, I that just reminded me when you were talking, it feels a bit like a kurtz thing from Heart of Darkness or or I guess Apocalypse now, which could totally be done from the perspective of aliens. Like a like I guess an imperialist alien comes to Earth and starts to get worshiped and hated by the primitive humans. It's a cool idea.
0: Uh we have an email from Kevin Harvey who says, I love your podcast about the Nevers. You often note things in an episode that seem minor, but turn out to be quite perceptive. Noting Myrtle understood Mary's song. Rewatching some of the episodes, I've noticed a couple of scenes that would like to hear your take on them. Um, They may be nothing or may be explained in episode six or later. So in episode three, Ignition, when Lucy pulls off her gloves and Mary grabs her, it appears as if Prudence actually grabs Lucy's gloveless hand around the uh, 43.54 mark, if you want to find that. Um, If so, is prudence immune to Lucy's turn or does it not work right away? Another observation about Lucy. (laughs) Prudence Uh, is her
2: identical twin that we haven't seen yet. That's going to come in the second part of the season.
0: (laughs) (laughs) I just realised that that's, yeah.
3: (laughs) The amount of times Uh, I've said prudence instead of penance is too many, so I, I, I feel you, Kevin.
0: Um. So, uh, another observation about Lucy, when she's fighting Amalia in episode 4, Undertaking, she holds the elephant pin um, Penance made her, and uh, again, it does not uh, get damaged, it doesn't destroy it. Why? Is it made from some special material? Uh, looking forward to the part 1 finale and listening to your podcast. Uh, thanks. So, thank you, Kevin Harvey. Yeah, upon rewatching, it's very clear I think that both Mary and Penance both touch Lucy's hands in that scene. But I think, you know... I mean, she has gloves on her hands. They don't break. She controls it at the party, you know. She brings gifts. She's holding things in her hand like a vase, and then she makes it. So I think she has... I don't think it's a thing that always works straight away, like every time she's to touch something. But I think... And she can control it. So if she's touching saying she can then trigger it like she does in the factory. She breaks the boxes as she's going past and kind of like in control but also especially when it first happened to her it it's not necessarily always under her control so and after she's you know killed her child she's it's probably more of a choice she actively doesn't want to touch anyone on purpose in case she hurts someone so um yeah that's my take on it
3: i think that's i think that's right it's funny i um i i had the same thought as kevin uh did when i was doing my my breakdowns for it and i actually thought it was a mistake but then i uh rewatched it a bunch and I, I feel the same way I think that she didn't realize she had this ability when she was touching her child and accidentally killed him uh and so it's kind of like because it was so traumatic it's kind of like a safety on a gun is how I or like a hand condom <laughs> it's just like it's like a fail safe in case in case something does go wrong but she can control mm. it
2: the pin I will say I feel like the pin was designed for Lucy especially by penance so it makes sense that it might have been made of a material that doesn't explode when she touches it. But ironically now that I look at it, it's very touching that she can touch it when she can touch so few things. And like it really focused on that pin and that pin saved her life. So I I thought that was a I thought that was a beautiful scene. But she's kind of holding that pin to her chest.
0: I think you're right. The pin looks like almost it's made up of lots of little parts that if she were to use her power on it, it would just uh, fall apart and could be put back together as opposed to it being like destroyed, which is, um, yeah. But it's, uh, like I say, it's a very focal point in the, in the show and for Lucy's character. Right, so from uh, hand condoms to... Uh, <laughs> like the, let's get into the show proper, yeah?
2: <laughs> let's do it. <laughs> okay, get ready, listeners, because... We are going to punch out your teeth with these hard hitting observations. <laughs> I hope you have your dentist and the tooth fairy on speed dial because it's going to be a soups only diet after this one, folks. All right. Okay. Now that I have overhyped this, it can be only a disappointment. <laughs> <laughs> That's okay. I like to operate in that space. Okay. So, so uh, I just wanted to say before we get, uh, before we get started with, um, like the 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 the, the proper uh, looking uh, the proper discussion, I wanted to go through a whole thing of names. The whole thing of names being sacred in the show, it sent me into a bit of a rabbit hole. And I wanted to target maybe like fifteen minutes or so to run through some of the character name etymologies that I that I looked up because I think I found some cool stuff. And if y'all have anything to add, feel free to stop me at any, at any point, or I'll just keep going. And uh, <laughs> cool. <laughs> Okay, cool. So, first off, let's start with Hugo Swan. All right. So, and I'm just gonna run through like uh, like uh, seven or ten character names here that I that I looked up. So Hugo Swan. Hugo is like the most masculine Germanic name you can possibly think of, right? You know, like Hugo the lumberjack. That kind of the Hugo is such a masculine name. And then you have Swan which has a more feminine quality to it. You know, like, a swan is this beautiful angelic bird uh, drifting on a pristine pond or something. So, Hugo Swan, I feel like, it, I think it does a good job as a name in representing his bisexuality. Like, he embraces the masculine and the feminine equally. And our intro to the character is him laying in bed and the camera panning from a woman on his left to a man on his right. Right. So I feel like that is a perfect name, and I'm just trying to get into the heads, the head of the creator, and who's kind of, like, dreaming up these names. Next, Augustus Bidlow and Lavinia Bidlow, these really royal Roman names, which really fits. Primrose and Myrtle are both names of plants. And they're both like planted together as friends. I'm going to stop you. Uh, f- I'm then... going to stop
3: you for a second because I think the yeah, name sure, Lavinia sure. is really interesting because I immediately think of um, the Shakespeare play Titus Andronicus. Lavinia is the name of his daughter, and it's actually quite sad what happens to her in the play. And it, I don't know if it connects to Lavinia at all. And I know that um, Joss's shows does have a lot of Shakespeare names like Cordelia and things like that. Yeah. So Lavinia in Titus Andronicus is his daughter, and she ends up being sexually assaulted uh, by by uh, two men and they cut off her hands and cut out her tongue so that she can't write their names who did it or speak their names and she's kind of like this tragic representation of like uh like guilt and destruction but like for someone else like because it's really to get at her father and it's a very very sad story and I think of Lavinia for some reason in the wheelchair I don't know I feel like that name was purposeful especially with the Shakespeare thing
2: Wow. Yeah, definitely. This is the benefit of this ideological exchange. I, uh, that's very interesting. Yeah. I, I didn't know that. Yeah. Uh, so I wanted to mention Desiree Blodgett. I guess that's the kind of like the corny, straightforward one. So she's a prostitute. And if you look at her name, it spells desire. She even mentions that Desiree desire, which is the industry of prostitutes desire. And it works because prostitute names are allowed to be a little on the nose. Um, and this is where it starts to get interesting. So, Declan Oren, a.k.a. The Beggar King. I looked up the name Declan, and it means full of goodness. Huh. Which is wonderfully ironic, <laughs> considering his character. And then, a little more tragically ironic, we have Lucy Best. So, Lucy means light, and Best is like a really positive surname, um, but like Declan Oren, her name Lucy as light really contradicts her much darker reality. So I thought that was interesting. Mary Brighton. That that one's pretty straightforward. So Mary is like the most divine feminine figure in Western theology and mythology. Just like Mary's song in the show is so divine. She's a symbol of love and hope. And And then her last name Brighton. It's pretty literal. Like... She she glows very brightly as she's singing, and also thematically, she's the bright light that the stuffy Parliament dude snuffed out to make the touched feel hopeless, which, as we see in episode 3, did not totally work, because Mary's light was carried on by Bonfire Annie, which, when she was literally using her fire as a guiding light for all those who had heard Mary's song... I thought that was interesting. And then this is maybe where I'm kind of connecting dots that don't connect, but this is my theory. Dr. Horatio Cousins. So Horatio, I looked it up. Horatio is a word of Latin origin, meaning timekeeper. And as we've seen, Amalia is very much linked with time, right? Like Amalia time-traveled, Amalia can see into the future, And the word keeper feels romantic to me. So my theory here is that the Horatio, Horatio meaning timekeeper is a reference to the character's relationship to Amalia. Like, like he's her keeper, Hmm. you know, that's kind of cute. I like that a lot. He's
3: also a Shakespeare name, by the way.
2: Oh, really? Yeah. I you forget. want to shed some light on that?
3: I, I actually forget the character. I wanted to be like, I think it I think it's from The Tempest, but I don't know. Somebody watching is going to like kick me for that. I don't know. I just know that, it, <laughs> oh, I know that he's a comedic character, if I remember correctly. He's either a comedic character or the villain of the play, and I want to say it's The Tempest, but that's all I remember about that. I just know that it's a Shakespeare name.
2: All right. Uh, next, we have Penance Adair. Uh, so this one's really interesting. So... In episode six, in Amalia's flashback triggered by the Galanthi, when she kind of goes into that underground room and she's talking to the Galanthi, we see her have that flashback, and in that flashback, we see Penance learning about the dystopian future. And in that scene, she says, As I see it, God gave me a gift, and by way of recompense, he's given me another. So obviously the gift she's referring to are her powers with electricity, and then her foreknowledge of the future. But I think the key word there is recompense, which is another form of penance. So my theory with her name is that her name is a metaphor for the impact of her inventions. And I think that, like Oppenheimer felt so much guilt and regret about his invention of the atomic bomb, and how it destroyed so many lives, I think that penance was initially destined to perhaps regret some of her own inventions that caused the destruction in the future. And she says in episode 5, she says, I always say that I won't make weapons, but most of my gimcracks, they could kill someone in the wrong circumstances. They're violent things, my engines. So I feel like Amalia traveling back in time and giving her the foreknowledge of the horrible destruction in the future is her second gift or her opportunity for recompense to make up for the future she might have caused by making different choices in the present and making it a life's work to bring about something positive, a life's work that could be called a penance. So that's my crazy theory about her name.
3: I love that. I think that that's really great (laughs) i didn't even i didn't even connect those two i mean i kind of forgot for a moment that you know penance has been aware of the future this entire time you know we just found that out in the last episode so keeping that in mind and looking back like that that's very observant nice
2: yeah recompense really did it for me Mm -hmm. um okay and then i i promise i won't monopolize the conversation too much i've only got a couple more to go so, next we have Harriet Kaur, and I talked about this a while back, so I apologize if the listeners start to experience some deja vu here, but uh, Harriet said something in episode four that I think is a key to her character. She says, how are we ever going to see justice if we're not a part of justice? And to me, that sums up why she wants to be a lawyer She wants to be a part of justice, which is not an opportunity afforded to a brown woman, particularly in that time period. Uh, And to mention this again, I promise I'll tie this back into her name. Harriet's power is to turn things into glass. And we see her shattering those glass grapes. I think, as a metaphor for her longing to shatter the glass ceiling that socially, economically, and politically so often limits women and people of color, So in terms of social justice, when I was looking at her name, the two famous Harriets that came to my mind, uh, Harriet Beecher Stowe, who wrote the anti-slavery novel Uncle Tom's Cabin, and Harriet Tubman, who was a slave herself and an abolitionist and an activist, and who, uh, after she already gained her own freedom, she personally made 13 trips back into slave territory to lead hundreds of slaves through the Underground Railroad to freedom and justice. So I don't know how you can't associate the name Harriet with justice. Like, I I don't think that's a coincidence, for me at least. No, Um, absolutely. That, like,
3: that, yeah. (laughs) I mean, (laughs) it was so funny because uh, some people that have been commenting on my videos were doing this whole, like, breakdown of how... The character's powers uh, relates to their their place in society and how they can change it. And somebody did mention clarity turning things into glass, and like I, I think you just nailed that.
2: Yeah, clarity is a part of it. Even with Buffy, the, all of the monsters were metaphors. It was about something more than just the fantastical, which I really appreciated. Okay, and then bonfire Annie. I looked up. I looked up. So the word bonfire it comes from Middle English. Bonfire or Fire of Bones. And the early Celts would have these bonfire festivals where animal bones were burnt to ward off evil spirits. And I feel like Bonfire Annie does kind of play that protective role now at the orphanage. You know, like the threat of her fire wards off potential evil spirits. So I made that connection there. And now we're getting into the meat of it. I'm going to talk about Amalia, Sarah. So... Amalia True, a.k.a. Molly, a.k.a. Zephyr. So, first I'm going to talk about Molly. Let's start at the beginning. So, in Hebrew, the name Molly is a diminutive of Mary. And the name Molly is defined as a sea of bitterness and wanting for a child, which is exactly what defines the character Absolutely. Molly. yeah. She wants nothing more than to have a child and a family, and as we see, her life circumstances are such that she turns bitter. She can't stand the taste of it anymore, but the etymological relationship between the names Molly and Mary was very interesting to me, because although Molly is derivative of Mary, they're still colloquially two different names. And that separateness between them reads to me, in the context of this show, like Molly wanting so badly to be Mary. Because the biblical Mary is granted a child, and it's the child of God, and by extension of that child, Mary herself becomes divine. But Molly is unfortunately not granted that child, and does not become divine. And, you know, like, Molly has her, her mantra in the flashback. She's like, God has his plans, so here we are. The heartbreaking thing for me is that it seems to her, to Molly, that she's not a part of God's plans, which turns out to not be true, because God did have plans for her, plan named Zephyr. And then I wanted to talk about Zephyr. And I'm sure you guys have thoughts about this, too. But And we talked about this in, in the last episode 6 review, But Zephyr means a gentle wind, and we talked about how that ties beautifully into the idea of the butterfly effect uh, that's used very often in science fiction time travel stories. Just like a butterfly flapping its wings can cause a tsunami across the globe, one person traveling back in time can radically change the future. So, the butterfly in this context is the Galanthi ship, which was described by Sarah as a dragonfly, and the Galanthi ship flapping its wings is what rains down all those spores, produces all the touched, and it's also what brings Zephyr back in time. So Zephyr is the gentle wind from the Galanthi's wings that will radically change the future. And for so long in this show, Amalia doesn't really know what her mission is. So I think her mission is her name, and it's sacred. Like, her mission is to be the gentle wind that causes a large tsunami. And I wanted to make one more connection with Zephyr. Like, in Greek mythology, and you mentioned this, Laura, Zephyros is the Greek god of the west wind. So, Zephyr does come to London from the west. I think she says she's Canadian-American. So, it really fits together like puzzle pieces, in my mind. Uh, and then lastly, as far as Amalia is concerned, we get to Amalia, who I think is the coming together of Mali and Zephyr. And Amalia in Hebrew means God's work. And if we take the Galanthi to represent God, or I guess more secularly hope, then it, it makes complete sense. Because it's not just Amalia's task to do God's work, but she herself is a product of God's work. Like, the consciousness of Zephyr and the body and mind of Molly were brought together by the Galanthi for a reason. It feels destined to me that 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 happened. Like, it was God's plan. Um, And the last last couple, couple characters I wanted to talk about, Sarah, a.k.a. Malady. So, we get to Sarah, and I won't rehash this point too much, but as I mentioned in the last episode, Sarah in the Bible is the beautiful, dutiful, kind, loving wife of Abraham, right? But when Sarah gets betrayed by Abraham, because he takes another woman as mistress, Sarah becomes cruel and vengeful. And that's exactly what happens in the context of this show. Sarah in this show is compassionate and loving, and she welcomes Amalia's friendship uh, with open arms. But after Amalia betrays her to Dr. Haig's scalpel, Sarah turns into malady, cruel and vengeful. And speaking of malady, I looked up the word malady, and I think it's kind of a very common word. The word malady is defined as disease. And what I thought was interesting here is that the doctor did not cure the disease. He created the disease. Like Dr. Haig turned Sarah into malady. You can look at Dr. Haig and all the meddling psychiatrists as emblems of a much larger patriarchic institution that doesn't just fail its constituents, but actively sabotages them for some kind of profit. And I feel like you can look at malady as an emblem of much larger social and societal diseases like poverty and crime and mental illness, that are spread like epidemics, and then the people who are most vulnerable to these forces are held individually responsible for them, like that'll solve anything, which is why I'm 100% team penance in understanding why Malady had to be rescued. I was on on board with penance. And then lastly, I just wanted to say about Dr. Edmund Haig, his is the only name that doesn't really mean anything. Which is more ammunition for my theory that he's a time traveling free lifer <laughs> because for free lifers, names are not sacred, they have no meaning. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so I'm pretty convinced about that theory. That's all I got. I'm done. I think,
0: I think what you just said about um, obviously, I've not made the correlation between how much we've thought throughout the show names are important and meaningful and really linked to their characters and the last episode where we've learned how sacred they take names in the future but that's like a massive thing
3: (laughs) i I thought it was interesting i mean i i I didn't even think of putting it in the context of like uh the past timeline that we've been seeing because like in the future episode i kept being like what is this deal with the names why is it so important (laughs) i took i took it as like this cultural thing that this is just the way people are in the future you know some people were willing to give up their name i didn't know if it actually meant like giving up power or or Um, letting people know something about you if you told them their name. I just thought it was like this cultural rule they kind of had. But then placing it in the context of the past, I mean, obviously all their names are very important, but I didn't even think of thinking it the same way. And it's that's really really, mind blown, mind blown.
0: (laughs) Also, what you've just said there when you said, uh, you know, telling someone your name is giving up your name, uh, kind of brings us back to in the first episode, Masson says that... um, about the word employed and employees that employees you know you can speak to someone on the singular and it's basically giving you you're not just a worker you're a person whereas the employed which is a term that he would prefer to keep you know forever in the future in the world kind of just you're just a blanket of people you're a number in in the workforce so you're not really important so yeah giving up your name
3: yeah, and then think about in the future, all of their names are pretty much their jobs or their position in the army or military, whatever you want to call them.
0: Mm.
2: Yeah, it, it, the the word employed or the term employed just kind of uh, makes you, it, it turns people into a monolith and they're no longer, they don't have individual rights. Um, yeah, I, I guess now that we we can kind of get into episode one, opening scene opening scene is Molly now we know that we didn't know that previously i i did want to mention so in that opening montage the cut transition from molly 3 years ago when she's kind of she plummets off that ledge to molly 3 years later waking up on the ground i thought that editing transition was so perfect because it's like this abrupt transition from molly falling Amalia on the ground and it's so interesting because typically you'd expect that when you fall hitting the ground will will result in death and you know like they say sleep is a cousin of death however the abrupt cut transition is not to Amalia sleeping on the ground it's to her awakening on the ground which is exactly what happens in the story because both Molly and Stripe plummet into an abyss and very much expect to die And yet both of them find themselves awakened in each other, re-emerging into this new weird world.
3: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that opening montage in general, I thought was outstandingly done, especially because it's all in silence, it introduces you to all these things. And what I love about it even more, now knowing what we do know about these characters, which you just pointed out, is that it's also edited within that context of the information that you will receive later on and it it makes it even better because i thought it was such a great standout interesting way to introduce us to this world because it was intriguing but it wasn't just intriguing now it also was edited with like a very specific purpose and the things they were showing us was very specific not only to the introduction of the story but also for what we would find out about the characters
0: yeah i think it's just another point that they've really clearly had this planned out very well the way that all the episodes are pieced together and where it all comes around to in the end like having to sit down and plan all that out on paper that must have been a crazy crazy job <laughs> i i just I, about I, it. I i
3: literally i kept saying throughout the entire first watch i was like i need to see the character plan sheet for for amalia because it is such a risk to have the the main character of your show have so much mystery where you don't know anything about her so she would just like she would just come out with these random lines sometimes and <laughs> would tell you so much about like where she was and her place and like it was just this one line, but I was like not o- not only that having a character be so mysterious and having her be likable like that or that you're interested in her storyline is a very hard thing to balance and i I think they killed it personally in this sh- in this
2: show yeah i, I agree. do want to commend i do want to commend both of you guys for feeling like her backstory was mysterious because I made the mistake when I was watching it at first to commit like very hard into this idea that she was this person who lived in the Victorian times and committed suicide because she lost her husband and the grief of that and all of this and this, and, you know, I just kind of, I, I committed so hard to that idea that when it started to reveal itself um, that she was more than the sum of her parts that there was a mystery to her i I, I don't want to say I got disappointed, but I got disapp- I guess I got disappointed a little bit but that was my own fault
3: yeah like what I, what I was really impressed with with Amalia uh, in general was like you know it, it, thinking about in context of Buffy like Buffy has these powers and she can kick ass because you know it's this supernatural force that has given her this thing. And so I thought it was like a really interesting progression to have the character Amalia who can pretty much fight, you know, like Buffy. She's got that kind of thing going on. But I kept saying like she can't just be someone in the Victorian era that can just fight like this for no purpose. So I, I, I loved like the the planning and the mysteriousness about like how she has these powers because with Buffy, I just accepted it because it was supernatural. And yeah, the same thing could happen in this show. But then... I mean, it makes total sense. Like, yeah, she can fight like that. She's she's a person from the future that was in the army and can fight like that. Like, it makes sense, you know? I love it.
2: Yeah, it was weird that a baker could had kung fu skills.
3: That was so weird about it. And, you know, me just being a Joss fan and, like, his shows, I was like, okay, cool. Like, that's cool. Cool idea. <laughs> but then it was so much more. <laughs> they did a great job.
2: So I don't know if we're going, you know, plot point by plot point here, but I feel like the next most significant moment in the first episode as far as uh reinterpretation uh for me was Amalia's fearlessness of the beggar king and of death because I so I initially thought that her fearlessness was because she's been intimate with death like she she committed suicide in that scene and I was right in a sense but it's also because she was a soldier and there's no profession more deeply intimate with death than a soldier. And using using intimacy as a metaphor, I feel like a, a war is like a crazy, a crazy death orgy where absolutely everyone gets either physically, emotionally, or psychologically fucked.
3: Where you uh, in the scene with the beggar king? Is this the same scene where he puts the knife to her face and she's like, "That's not my face"?
2: Exactly. Yeah.
3: Yeah, definitely. I um, I guess that's the thing that tipped me off to her being a little bit more than we were led on to believe. But yeah, uh, when I had originally watched that scene, I just thought it was, yeah, she was somebody that kind of wanted to die and live through it. And it was more of, you know, symbolically, like, this is no longer my face. I don't care about my body. You can you can come after me. You can hurt me. And it's like, I already tried to kill myself once, so screw you, you know?
2: Yeah, i <clears throat> I initially thought that the this isn't my face line was metaphoric. Like, I thought, I thought she was saying this pretty face is a facade. You know, like, beneath it, she feels ugly and twisted and scarred. Which connected for me with the thing uh, they had going on where Penance would say, um, Mrs. True, you look very fine. Which is a comment remarking on appearance. Like, you look fine. And then she would respond, I think so too. And she responds that way the first two times. But then the third time at the end, when her facade comes off... And she's beaten and drunk and visibly miserable. Pennant says it again, Mrs. True, you look very fine. And she kind of chokes on her words. And then Amalia doesn't respond, I think so too. And now that we know that this isn't my face is literally true because it's not, <laughs> it's not her face. She was transplanted into another body. I still think the facade thing kind of works on a second more emotional level.
0: Yeah, also when she's saying, um, you know, you look fine today, and she's like, Well, I think so too. She's literally looking when she looks in the mirror or she sees her herself, she's not really seeing herself, she's seeing someone else. So she can totally say, Yeah, I think I look good because it's not like she's not bigging herself up. She's looking at someone that's not her body.
3: And what works what works so well about that little that little jingle that they have is the first episode when I watched it the first time, I thought that it was uh I felt like Amalia's ripplings were very similar to, like, falling into anxiety, specifically when, or, like, an anxiety attack, specifically when they're walking into the party and a rippling is about to come on and Penance grabs her hand. And so this, like, repetition of the, you look fine, I think so, too, I thought was a way to ground Amalia. Mm. Because I thought that there, I still think that there might be a plot line in the future where she gets caught in one of her ripplings and can't get out. And so I thought that it was a, yeah, I thought that it was a way to, like, anchor her. But now, what makes it again even better is this thing knowing that she hated the body she was put into. You know, she mentions multiple times that it's too short. She wishes she was taller. Like, why bring her back in this body if she's supposed to kick ass in it? Like, why would that happen? And yeah, not only is it a way to like ground her, but it's a way to remind her, like, you look good, like, you know, kind of like body dysmorphia a little bit. It's like, you look fine. I'm here to tell you that you look good. And, yeah, one of those things that's even better on a rewatch, like, they killed it.
0: In that same scene, just want to touch on again the uh, the odium line with the, sorry for the stench, you cannot get that man into the bath. Just as a, you know, these are all little things that you don't realise are placed until you watch it back again. But yeah, I, I think there's a few moments before that scene that I kind of um, have some stuff to say on. Uh, one of the things I need to ask, because I want... I don't know what your guys', you guys opinion is on this, but um, when we first meet Myrtle, my thing is kind of like, did she only just kind of get her power? Because this is three years on from the event, right? And her parents are freaking out now because she started speaking all these languages. So did she not start speaking all of this until now? Because everybody else seemed to get their powers right away. People like Augie, I feel like, got them right away, but weren't really sure what they were. And they kind of developed and got like more present over time. But um, yeah, I was just wondering what you guys think on that.
3: I have, I have a whole theory about Myrtle. And I think what you just said added to that theory. Um, is it okay if we jump to something that happened towards the end of the show? Yeah, let's do it. Uh, yeah. <laughs> so I spent hours upon hours re going over the 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 vision that True has when she's falling from the Galanthi, and of course, what what took everybody back was Myrtle saying the "Oh my, Amalia, this is a long time off from that little cave." I've yes. yeah, I've rewatched that scene like <laughs> slow motion, screen cap, you got it, the whole thing, right? I did that, yeah, <laughs> yeah. And I th- I think I I think this might sound crazy at first, but I think the Galanthi is not in that ball, but is inside Myrtle as a way to hide, and I don't know why all these languages would come in, especially not English, but I do think that Myrtle. As the Galanthi was talking to True and saying, I need you to forget this, as in like that you saw me like this in the future, in this void of space where the Galanthi is. Um, There's also something very interesting that happens in that vision where when, uh, when Zephyr is turned into the ship and her soul is going out through like the... Almost like the portal, you know, the last shot after she kills herself. There's like this little ball that the Galanthi turns into. And in that vision, when uh, Masson shoots the gun while Amalia is having her vision, and you see the shot of Malady and Masson, uh, there's a shot of this ball that looks exactly like the ball of the ship in this void of space. That's the same void of space that Myrtle says her thing to True in later. So... I didn't even put together that her power, uh, quotation marks there, uh, didn't arise until now, which I think might have might add to this. Like maybe the Galanthi was like, "Oh no, I've been found. I have to leave," and somehow went inside Myrtle. I don't know. (laughs) It's still like half baked.
2: So I have a question (laughs) for your theory. So are you saying that the Galanthi is hiding or is using Myrtle in the vision? Or like in reality, like actually in physically,
3: like I think physically, physically, physically. Like from
0: from the moment we meet her in the in the yes. first episode, yeah. yes.
3: Because we already know that the doctor is underneath the city and has found the Gal- the Galanthi ball, as I'm going to refer to it as. And what's <laughs> interesting about this Galanthi ball thing is it's glowing blue when the Galanthi we see in the future isn't glowing at all. And the only time we see this glowing blue light is when it can use these kind of octopus tentacle arms to like grab things. I assume we don't really see what it can do besides rip somebody's soul out of their body. Uh, but the ball is also glowing blue. So I was like, the Galanthi itself doesn't really glow. So I kept being like, what does that mean for the actual ball? And then not to mention the the second part of the vision is the ball exploding and turning orange, which I have no idea what that is. Um, <laughs> Either, maybe that, I don't it can't be the past, but I don't know. But yeah, I think from the time we met Myrtle, she is somehow either the Galanthi's essence inside. And I think it definitely ties into this whole idea that the Galanthi that went back in time and, and kind of put this plan into motion is not right in the head due to the torture it went through and is kind of, I think, like a, like a rogue Galanthi out on its own mission that kind of goes against this galanthi culture of how they normally interact with societies so this galanthi is like i don't know like i i can take the form of somebody i, I don't really know exactly what they can do so this is just like you know some sort of crazy <laughs> conspiracy theory well,
2: we do see in the future that uh it was mentioned by knitter that when the galanthi showered its spores over the people that they were able to understand its language and its technology And it seems like in the Victorian times when it did the same thing, like a bunch of people got superpowers, which didn't happen in the future, but the one character, Myrtle, who, like she's the one who got the traditional, um, like she got the traditional outcome, she got the language, and we haven't seen it yet, but perhaps the technology of the Galanthi. My theory is that the Myrtle we see in the Vision is like an evolved Myrtle, like a, like a, you know, like a super Myrtle, and she, like, at some point they all do go into the future together as like a group of X-Men or something, um, for some reason or another, and, um... I don't know. Uh, maybe that's not true. I, no, I, I like I that. No I mean,
3: really, the only thing that trips me up about Myrtle is the fact that English is the only language she can't speak. Like, I don't think she's ever said any word in English,
2: other than yeah. in the vision.
3: Other than in the vision, yeah. yeah. Which, which that just leads me to question, like, okay, if it is the Galanthi, why would it? If it can understand all these other languages, which I'm assuming they can, because I'm assuming the Galanthi does this to other sorts of civilizations throughout throughout the universe. Then why is English the one that she can't speak? I don't yeah, know. Yeah.
0: Also, also, it's like she can't, she can't control it. Or she can't like pick this language or that language. It's just kind of like to her almost. It's just like gobbledygook coming out because, it, like, she's not aware of what she's saying. She knows what she's saying in her head, which, you know, might be English in her head if she is just a wee little girl and not an alien or whatever. But it could be that whatever's been put inside her at the moment her body and her human side is trying to make sense of it and then she evolves over time to become that myrtle in the future where that power has become fully evolved.
2: It's kind of like Amalia's inability to control what snippets of the future she sees because she sees very strategic snippets that it seems like have a purpose but she's not the one deciding that so it's almost like her clairvoyance is the agenda of someone other than her, probably the Galanthi.
0: Also her anxiety and the fact that she has those issues before getting the power, is there a future where once everybody knows and all of her friends, you know, her family, her unit, are on board with what's the what the mission is, if her anxiety and whatever calms down and she can kind of work through that, will her power then become more controllable? Like will she be able to see actual snippets where she wants to in the future if she has more control over that because at the moment it is triggered it seems by her anxiety her anxiety and the the situations that she's in as opposed to well anything else um so yeah if she can get that under control would she have control over ability i have something else that's like a crazy theory as well upon re-watching which then in another episode it kind of possibly just gets explained in a really offhandish comment. But basically, uh, during Melody's speech um, at the opera, there's the moment where Amalia sees her jump up onto the balcony. But it's really bugged me from episode one um, because uh, it doesn't then happen. And everything else we've ever seen Amalia see, we then see it happen because it's little glimpses of the future. So was it simply there? because it was, like, for TV and it was this little scare moment, um, or is it, and, you know, this could be crazy, crazy theory, but is it possibly, like, from a different timeline? You know, we see them going through time, and if they're going to now attempt to change things, you know, if they start jumping through time and that and they're creating different, like, timelines and moments, I don't know. I just thought that it was bugging me because it doesn't it doesn't fit um And, yeah. But then later on in episode three, she says, I see things that aren't there. You know, she sees the future, but she also just says, I see things that aren't there. So I don't know if that just kind of explains that she sometimes sees random things um, because of her anxiety. But, yeah, it was bugging me. So I don't know if you guys have thought about that little snippet.
2: I'm 100% dogmatically, blindly believing in the latter explanation that you gave where it's another timeline. I I feel like maybe she saw another reality that could have happened but didn't happen because she jumped down or something like that Mm. because uh because the whole point of her going to the past is to change the future right i feel like the other what else would be the reason for her to go in the past
0: yeah it's just strange because everything else we see then then happens but this is just like this random little snippet that that doesn't happen because um Yeah, go on.
3: Well, because I was going to say I have one in regards to the vision and maybe somebody has a better memory than me. But in the vision where I agree with you, by the way, that it is like definitely a thing that does not happen and it fits out of the realm of it. It's something that like is close to actually happening. You know what I mean? Like like Malady is in the theater, but she doesn't end up doing that one thing that we see her do. And I immediately think of when Amalia has the rippling where she's in Masson's office looking at the the heads I think in episode 4 before the Lucy reveal I don't know if the vision she has in that scene is exactly how that scene plays out either because she has this okay. vision where she's looking at the 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 heads above Masson's like fireplace and Masson's walking in front of the heads talking to her and maybe I have to go back and rewatch this moment but I don't think that that they're ever placed that way in that scene. Like, he never walks on that side of the room. He's kind of on the left side of the room when, you know, the heads are on the right. And he ends up sitting in a chair. Like, there there never is an exact moment that happens, but she does end up in his office talking to him. Maybe I'm misremembering that, but I, I do think that those visions are also a little wonked.
0: And that's good. That gives us maybe the possibility that she can alter. Because the way she... We've kind of seen it before is that she always ends up where where she sees and can can she change it if she really tries to see it because if you i don't know for instance we'll probably you know it could happen she sees penance dying like she's going to want to change that right she's going to want to really really try her best to make sure that that does not happen so these little snippets hopefully show us that she can have some control over where that future goes?
3: Yeah, I was gonna say the only Amalia that we've seen so far is she's kind of like I got a vision. We're going to the opera. We're going to the yeah. opera, or like this is what I'm, she's <laughs> that's never exactly tried to fight. Exactly
2: what I was gonna say. Yeah, she's never tried <laughs> to it, fight it. It feels like if like if she just didn't go to the opera, then would that invalidate her vision? I'm curious
3: <laughs> if like she'd end up there anyway. I don't know. That's something that they they might play with is her being like I don't want to do this thing, but it's gonna happen anyway. Or yeah, interesting. Yeah,
2: I did want to mention also. In that opera scene. So, Malady's performance that was very much coming from pain gets upstaged by Mary's performance coming from wanting to help people. And I think the song that Mary sings in that scene is actually a message to Malady that she couldn't understand, that like her warped mind misinterpreted. You know, just like when Mary was singing in the meadow, it was a message to Amalia that Myrtle was able to interpret. I think in the theater, Mary's song was trying to tell Malady that she has a greater purpose and that she doesn't need to just act out of pain. She can help people. She can do something.
3: I I was like, somebody has to go back and compare the two songs now because I'm curious if the song she sings in the theater sounds different than the song she sings Mm. in the Meadows. I mean, they sound similar because it's the same kind of voice, but I wonder if the actual structure of the song is different which i'd be curious to hear
2: yeah i guess amalia was in attendance in both yeah Mm -hmm.
0: yeah i have another bit so when they're at the bottom of the stairs so after she's chased her off the stage uh she goes down she loses her dress she they're fighting and she says give me the girl and she has this moment melody where she's looking at her and then she has this realization she just says no but it looks more like she's not saying no about the girl, but she's looking and she realizes at that exact moment who Amalia really is, and it's like a shock, like almost like no, like this this can't be you, this can't be happening, like what what's going on, kind of thing. Which obviously you don't kind of realize. I mean, we learn in the second episode that that that's that there's more to her and that they know each other, but only now from watching, you know, the sixth episode do we see this relationship that they had and how terrifying and horrible it would be for malady to meet her again and it's almost like not that she's like foiled her plans but you know back then she's kind of ruined her life the first time and now malady's kind of even though it's terrible she's making something of herself and trying to do something and here she is again amalia molly to kind of ruin it so it's just this like everything just falls from you see her face just drops and she's like no um Yes, yeah, so that's a really nice moment. Once you know everything that's kind of coming.
3: Yeah, good catch.
2: Yeah, and I think the, the what Malady says in her association with her friendship with Amalia is a friend is someone you trust who trusts you back. And I just realized when you were talking about that in that scene, when Malady says no, she's it's it's like because she realized that they're not friends, and if a friend is someone who you can trust who trusts you back, that means she can't trust Amalia. So when Amalia asks you, give me the girl, no, I don't trust you.
3: I mean, I just want to comment on one thing in regards to Amalia losing her dress, which I, I think is very iconic. It's funny because, you know, the first couple episodes, like Amalia loses her dress a couple of times. And I remember getting into debates with people about like, is that something just so like, you know, she can fight to like get her clothing off, kind of like this this woman image in, in television shows. And I kept being like, I don't know, like it's kind of cool, but like I get it. Like, and who could fight in a dress like that? So like, I understand. But now it makes even more sense that it's like Zephyr being like, no, get this thing off my body, <laughs> you know? And like, I can't fight in this. Like, this is so screwed up. What is this corset? So I think that it works really well, which again, kind of ties into that whole thing about Amalia being able to kick ass and it all making sense being explained
2: like subconsciously she's trying to escape the, the conventions of victorian society oh my god totally <laughs> i mean
3: i i kept being like after watching episode six i was like that'd be so scary could you imagine being sent back to a place like that i mean oh my god
2: <laughs> no hot showers
3: <laughs> no hot showers i mean i've been in a corset before and they are very uncomfortable <laughs>
0: They are, yeah. They make you feel, like, really great for a little while, but then they just get painful and it's like...
3: (laughs) Oh, my God. Could you imagine trying to fight in that? No way.
2: I also think that Malady, in the very end doesn't forget that she saw the the spaceship thing or the the Galanthi. She doesn't forget because I think she was meant to be the empath to spread the message. Mm. Because you remember in the last episode... Uh, in the conversation between Amalia and Horatio they were talking about the one who was supposed to be the leader the empath empathically enhanced person to lead the touched my theory is that malady was supposed to be that person and maybe that's what the message in the opera was about
0: Mm.
3: that's really that's really really interesting actually because I also too was like very, uh very uh, focused on the fact when Amalia was like, "There's somebody that's supposed to guide us that's empathically enhanced, like you." Didn't think that it could be Malady, but that totally makes sense. I was kind of leaning into this whole, uh, I guess, conspiracy theory, if you will, about this like Galanthi that's not following the normal rules that a Galanthi fights, and I was like, "This Galanthi was like, no one's gonna get that, like nobody's <laughs> gonna be the leader because." Uh, uh, it di- obviously didn't work the time that they tried to do it with humanity. So it was like instead of kind of artificially giving somebody what they need, like artificial hope, this galanthe is trying to uh, almost make everyone a puzzle piece that all needs to work together to create like actual human will to change things as opposed to artificially, like, you need to change because I'm telling you to change. It's like, now you need to change and figure it out yourself, kind of like a parent teaching a child, because you already failed already.
0: (laughs) I like that you said as well, bringing them together, because I think that's in in the speech. It was like, um, bring everyone together, essentially. Yeah, and and I uh, think that
3: this might be also why Myrtle doesn't understand every language, because if you think about Myrtle's purpose, was she was the one that understood the song, and then got everyone together of all different languages mm -hmm. and cultures in order to, you know, transcribe the song, so...
2: Yeah, her confusion of languages is kind of a unifying trait. Because she knows that the Chinese, Russian, all sorts of languages across the world, and even the people who come to the orphanage are very diverse ethnically and geographically. So I I, I get what you're saying. The only thing that convinces me of the theory that malady is the one is the scene where Amalia first comes in and Malady really comforts her and like cradles her head and is so compassionate and empathetic and it's such a different character from what Malady becomes, who Sarah was in that asylum and just the disparity between the two makes me feel like Sarah was the empath and then Malady just got twisted beyond recognition and just the whole message got you know, warped.
0: Um, So you see Lucy looking for all the papers in the office. So when they get back to the orphanage after picking up Myrtle, you see Lucy in the office and she's looking for the papers. Then she grabs like some vegetables or something in a little bit of fabric and like goes back out. And you don't think about it twice. But then after knowing that she's sneaky, you're like, yeah, why would she be like tidying papers in an office when she's clearly in the middle of doing gardening? Like... You know, when you think think back to it and you think, why didn't I think anything of that? It's really random. And then like hurries outside when when they get back. Uh, Also, I really like in the same scene the the thing with Horatio. So it's just funny because Horatio um, swears a lot and he's the one in the sixth episode says to Stripe, you know, not to swear so much. So for now, kind of like a role reversal where they've come in their relationship. He swears a lot and she's... Very um, well, she's almost at least when she's t- talking to some people, a very proper lady, and uh, kind of doesn't swear as much in in um in certain respects. Well, when she lets rip,
3: <laughs> <laughs>
0: <laughs> then she's all back to it. Uh, so episode two, so episode two starts with um Beth Cassini, uh the sales assistant in the store with the the floaty powers. So this kind of opens up the whole thing. <clears throat> with the Lavinia's henchmen, and you know, basically harvesting the the touched to work in our underground um, Galanthi mine. So, I think Chirag mentioned that this is it this episode that is like all about betrayal because she mm-hmm. gets betrayed by her friend who she worked with, and then we find out everything, and then it ultimately leads us to knowing that it's Lavinia that's in charge of all this. And she quite... also
2: gets betrayed by the flyer.
0: Yeah, the flyer. Just there's a lot that goes on in this episode. Oh, picking up on something you said earlier, I think we see we see Masson and all the other people in the gentleman's like club, like the um the the inside of the club for the first time. And Masson says uh, when they're talking about Amalia, she says, "Well, she's not a fucking baker," mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> which is great because obviously now we see that Molly was just this baker lady um fairly normal person and he's picking up on the fact that she's clearly much more than that now
3: yeah this this episode in general actually the whole episode and i'm not ashamed to say this when i first watched it i probably not that i was disappointed with it but i thought it was like a a a weaker a weaker you know episode compared to the first episode but uh this one in particular, on a rewatch, knowing the information you know, is a lot, there's a lot more in this episode than I even realized in the beginning, because you know, you're know you hit with so many things in this one, like uh, the, the revelation that Amalia knows who Sarah is, and I kept being like, does she only remember in that moment when I first watched it? I was like, that's a little confusing to me. But now it makes total sense, you know, once you see how it played out, you're like, yeah, that that is exactly what would happen. She wouldn't really remember this girl because it was just kind of this one-off thing to get her out of the asylum. And then that ties into also like the baker comment. I remember hearing that the first time and being like, okay, what? People think she's a baker? Like, Like, okay. Like, they didn't know this about her that she's been like running around like kicking ass all over the town. Like, okay. But this one in particular, I like a lot more after seeing the the whole six episodes because this one I actually found a little disappointing. (laughs) Oh, something in this episode. Episode also, my breakdown on this one on YouTube is very interesting because this episode was written by Jaina Spenson and I have like a love-hate relationship with some of the things she does. And in this episode in particular, I, I comment that she keeps doing this, this thing as a writer where she like ends a scene with these kind of one-off funny lines. Like this episode a lot has uh, Malady talking to Mary and then like doing like something, something, something and like running off and that's how the scene ends. And there's particularly one scene where... Uh, Malady is talking to Mary and asks her this question. Mary goes into this really heartfelt monologue about what the song means to her. And then Malady goes, No, I was asking what got you interested in theater. And she smiles, right? Then a few episodes later, when you know that Malady has been pretending to be Effie um, Boyle this whole time, and people were kind of talking to me about it, saying, what, she's crazy but can pretend to be a sane person for that long and nobody knows, that's a little confusing how that works. And I was like, no, it makes total sense. Like, she actually loves theater. The first time you see her, she's giving a stage monologue on stage and then she's more curious about how Mary got interested in theater that, like, it totally makes sense that she'd be able to pull this off. She's, like, putting on a show, quite literally.
0: Yeah, I've not thought about that. Yeah, is like the perfect actress (laughs) yeah
3: literally like she was like i i i you know i'm very interested in your work and like she enters the first time we meet her she enters by killing the actor playing the devil and enters like i just killed the bad guy and bows you know
2: yeah and i think she's a perfect metaphor in that episode for the tortured artist because so much everything about her like her power is pain and uh it's such a such a cliche of you know the the starving artist the tortured artist the the crazy artist the and then we have Mary who just kind of sings from this place of helping people and not about her about protecting the people in the auditorium and um, the divinity and the glow and and the brightness of her and even her name is Brighton and just the, the the contrast between the two of them really played well for me in that scene, particularly uh, where she was basically telling Malady that the reason I sung in that moment was not to upstage your performance, but was to maybe let you know that you don't necessarily need to act out of pain. You can, you know, it, it's not it's not a requirement. to to give a beautiful performance. And by all means, Malady is good at performing, which we see in the Effie Boyle performance. Like, she speaks so much in this broken poetry that we see in other Whedon shows, like with River and stuff, and Drusilla and Buffy, I guess. And then with Effie Boyle, she's so lucid and calculated and conscious, and it's really interesting. I'm excited to see... Where she goes next?
0: I would. Um, I just want to add something for like those little bits where she's with Mary. A lot of the time, it's kind of like hard to understand what she's saying, and you assume that like half of it's gibberish or it's whatever. But I was like, okay, so Malady says uh, what is like totally not gibberish, but makes complete sense now um, after watching episode six because she says, "I'm not looking for her." This is when Bonfire Annie is saying. Um, that Amalia's address is really important when it comes to arson, if they're just looking to kill to kill her, right? She says, I'm not looking for her, I'm looking for her. Um, the entire of her, her fucking soul, right? So we now know that she isn't like a whole person, right? Amalia is the soul of Zephyr inside Molly's body, So I'm now like, this is leading me to think Malady really knows more because I don't think um, we see, like, I don't think Molly confides in her in a way that she tells her she's from the future and tells her everything, right? Because otherwise that information would have made it to Dr. Hague because she tells him everything. She was just there. She says, I believe you. So that Sarah had someone that believed her story. So... For her to say something like this, it's almost like she knows that she's not who she says she is. She knows that what she's after is her soul, not the person she's on the outside. So yeah, I found that super, super interesting.
3: You know, we don't really know exactly what Dr. Haig did to her after Amalia kind of gave her over. And I... I come from the same as uh, Chirag does where I believe that Dr. Hague is a free life member from the future because it seems like he was really attuned to uh, the word mission. Like he was like, Oh, like that's kind of what, what draws his sights to the one person he wants. I heard you have a mission. And then when he finds out that when Amalia lies and says, no, it was, you know, Sarah the whole time, he immediately is like, Oh, she's the one with the mission. So I wonder if he questioned her in a way too that might have, Mm. you know, and Sarah's being like, this is not me at all. It must be this other woman, Molly. And he's saying like, what's your mission? And maybe mentioning things from the future, which tips Sarah off as well, but also both could be there. I was just mentioning, we do not know what the doctor said to her or what the doctor knows.
2: Yeah, and it's an interesting point that uh, you make, Laura, because Malady also calls Amalia the woman who sheds her skin, which like i initially thought was a reference to to the betrayal and you know the snake in the garden of eden that betrays eve which is true kind of but also it's literally true that amalia does shed her skin she's in a different skin and so it kind of there's a hint there that malady has a deeper knowledge mm. of what's going on
0: i also think um so malady's always talking about kind of almost like she's being told what to do by God. Like she's hearing words from God, but or the Galanthi, but from our assumptions, she can't understand the language as it's said because she doesn't understand, or uh, as far as we're aware, what Mary was singing, which is the actual Galanthi language. But in terms of what you think, Chirag, in that she is like the empath that the Galanthi created, I think that they don't necessarily communicate through language, as a spoken thing that it might be more of like a telepathy type thing or just you know emotions in general that's kind of so even if she can't understand what they're saying properly she kind of gets it through empathy and just through the the feelings possibly
3: it's really funny i don't know if you guys experienced the reaction from a lot of people i don't know from like the internet that were kind of like oh the word galanthi came out of nowhere I was like very attuned to in 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 that episode when Molly says, you know, the voice of the Galan. That like, I guess I didn't feel like it came as much out of nowhere as other people seem to.
0: Should we move on from episode two that we didn't really like very much?
3: <laughs> I mean, I love <laughs> or that it. Now. Was maybe
0: I think it's still it was still when even after watching all six now, it's one of the weaker episodes that you can just kind of skip through almost.
2: How dare you? <laughs> I loved episode two. I'm an episode two guy. I've i tattooed episode two on my chest.
0: <laughs> what about episode three?
3: What a good episode. That's I love right. episode
0: three.
3: <laughs> <laughs> I don't know, Chirag, do you not? Is it not your style?
0: No,
2: it's all right. I liked it. It was it was good.
3: Wow, this one this one I thought this just this episode in general was just really well done. I mean, there's not really much to take from this episode. Like on a rewatch, where I maybe noticed more things, I still feel the same about it as when I first watched it. Uh. Uh,
0: there's a few mo- again, like a few small moments where I like noticed things, but yeah, nothing like major, major, major that gives me any theories. Um, but I think it was one of the strongest episodes. It has my favorite moment, probably from the entire show, which was the Odium Amalia fight. I just think it was just like the best fight sequence I've seen in anything like I
3: agree I was gonna say I, I you know I went to school for film and like I love film production and the way things are done and I was like I have never seen a I've seen people walk on water I've seen that sort of thing but never somebody that was not buoyant on the water fighting somebody that was and the way that it was done mm. was I, I thought it was exceptionally well done
2: and it does seem to me like Amalia has a lot of water-based trauma because if I'm remembering correctly, there's a little f- flashback scene where we see in the future Stripe, we see how she gets that scar because she was held down in the water and someone cut her face, right? Am I just imagining that no, or did that actually right, happen? That
0: yeah, it was like a fight in the yeah.
2: Right, exactly. And then her like her visions are ripples, kind of like a watery kind of thing. And then you have the fact that Molly jumped into the river to commit suicide. And then you have the water fight. So there's a lot of water-based anxiety for every iteration of Amalia.
0: I can't believe I've only just fought rippling, yeah. rip Ripples on the water. Sometimes you blow my mind. You know when it's just these little things and they can just completely blow your mind? <laughs> this is how detailed this show is.
2: It's amazing how, like, focused whoever wrote this, whoever created all, or the group of people, like, how furrowed their brows must have been when they really sat down and focused. It's amazing the detail and just like the intricacy of everything
3: yes and i was i was gonna say in regards to the 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 email we wrote in the beginning that was talking about episodic versus um serialized and how this is a serialized format i i, I gave a lot of thought to this and like oh why is it different than the other shows he's had to do and i was like well this is how like a binge watching show should be done like like you have the ability to think all of this out like a book before you're making it whereas you know buffy firefly everything else pretty much was kind of being written as it was being made i mean dollhouse did have a plan and fire they did have plans you know but uh i i think that that's why this show feels a little bit more serialized because you can because on a, on a rewatch it'll be awesome or just a first binge watch for people
0: just some little things that i picked up on this episode well the only one that might be like a theory type thing was again with the so um when they're in Lord Masson's mansion and they go down into the dungeon, and we've like kind of discussed whether we think it's his daughter, his daughter's turned into some kind of monster because of the spores. So going back, first of all, I kind of thought to myself after rewatching the first episode and when the spores fall, was she? Where was she coming out of the daughter? Was it like school or was it possibly a doctor's or a hospital of some kind? Because. Lord Masson was given a folder or a file of some kind, which could possibly be like a hospital record or something, and he doesn't look all too shocked when she collapses, and he's instantly also in major shock mode like she's... Um, I said that he wasn't shocked and then that he was, but what I mean is <laughs> he goes into such panic like she's dead instead of like a normal person might just be like, oh, that person's passed out, do you know what I mean? So I'm wondering whether she had some kind of illness already. And, and is just dead, and there is no crazy theory. On the flip side to that, <laughs> with crazy theories, the noises that you hear are quite strange. They're not really, like, animal. They're almost, like, alien, is what I would say. They're, like, like weird, kind of clicky, growly, what I would... And I can only say I'm not sure if I paid too much attention to whether the Galanthi in the sixth episode make any kind of noise, but they're in kind of, like, the glassy-looking, you know... Um,
2: Wait, which noise are you talking about? Are you talking about in the first episode?
0: So in the third episode, in the dungeon, the noise that the whatever it is it locked up makes, and then I wasn't sure whether the Galanthi in the sixth episode makes any kind of noise, but it's in that, you know, what looks like a glass-holding cell. Um, Yeah, so I wasn't sure whether if she has turned into some kind of monster, if it's some kind of alien Galanthi-related being.
3: Yeah, that's in- oh, wow. I didn't even think about that. I was thinking about how I was like, the Galanthi's definitely not in that ball, or at least to me, I don't think that it is. And I was like, yeah, what if it's what if it's there? I mean, it could be his daughter, but like more than that, like what if it does make that? What if he's keeping the Galanthi down there, or like they already have it and they got it out or something like? I don't know.
2: I didn't think of that. Neither did I. <laughs> hey, uh, hey, Tyler, you've seen Game of Thrones, right? Of course. I- is it just me, or is Lord Masson feeling like a bit of a Stannis Baratheon, you know, like keeping his daughter in the dungeon?
3: Absolutely, yes. I was actually thinking that, and are you guys Walking Dead fans at all, like, before it got bad?
0: Uh, yeah, I watched the first, like, four seasons, maybe?
3: Okay, because I was, like, a huge fan of the graphic novel, and he reminds me of the mayor with his with his daughter.
0: Right, yeah, of uh, course, yeah.
3: Yeah, did they keep that in the TV show? Yeah, his daughter turns into a yeah, zombie, yeah. and he keeps her, like like trapped in the basement because he's trying to cure her of something so i also thought of that but yeah the stannis thing is good too
0: um other little minute things is that you uh lucy mentions that she's got money but not from stealing so it's kind of like she's trying to really say that it was not from stealing but then where should she did get it we know now that if she had any mus- uh, money it must be from what she'd been given by masson for betraying everybody also i feel like lucy was the one who got the most upset at the end because she's been giving information to Masson and whether she knew it or not, it led to Mary's death. And she falls to the ground. She's like crazy, crazy. She shouts no. Um, You know, everybody else is upset, but she goes way, way more overboard with why she's upset. And it's either an conversation or it's because, like she says, I think in the next episode, she didn't know that Masson was going to have her killed.
2: Um I think with the thing with Lucy is that for her, her... Um, her turn was a bit of a curse for her. Like she accidentally killed her own child and it's something she wants to get cured. It's an affliction. And Mary, um, for Mary, Mary is the, the symbol of it not being cursed, but a gift, something beautiful, something divine, something that can lead to a better world, a different world, and when we see Lucy in that scene, hearing the song, it's such, maybe not, a revelation in the moment that, I don't know, maybe it can't, even even a revelation can't sometimes stay with us. Sometimes we just regress back to who we were after something incredible is shown to us. But I think in that moment, and even Mary herself was like, make sure Lucy is there when I'm uh, singing, because in that moment, I think Lucy has a taste of what it could be, that her power could be something good. Hmm. But ultimately, we know how that story ends. But I don't <laughs> think it ends. I think Lucy comes back.
0: Yeah, I've not really given it much thought. I don't think we're ge- uh, I don't know. I think this show is really good. It throws a lot of characters in. You care about them a lot, but also, if they leave, it's not like... I wouldn't be surprised if any of them were to die at any second, and I wouldn't feel like really hurt that the show took away that character I would like expect that in a show like this any character can be lost at any point and we'll just have to accept that my last little point on this episode which kind of plays into something you were saying earlier about Amalia and the dresses she says that she loves dresses they're wonderful because she's lost her dress again and Penance uh, points it out and I think that's a kind of like what you were saying, she never would have wore that stuff in the future. She's a soldier, and this whole dress thing, this corset thing, is new. Um, and while it might be uncomfortable and not the best for fighting, you know, for her, it's it's this new experience. And you know, why not? I'm, sh- you know, she likes dresses. They're yeah. they're wonderful.
2: We also know in the future she wasn't always a soldier, which is that scene where she's eating the tomatoes. So beautiful because she's kind of reliving a nostalgic past that she doesn't have in the present in the future, <laughs> but maybe she's familiar with the Victorian yeah, artifacts. Yeah, I was just going to say,
0: so she's familiar with the Victorian era and seems to know about it, so I guess she's possibly looked at all this stuff and studied it, and to be back there is quite intriguing and like an interesting experience.
3: Oh, and in regards to episode three as well, I think this is the first time we have the uh, uh, penance creates the amplifier. It's the first time we have, you know, true saying, Oh, you made the amplifier. And what's interesting now with the con knowing that penance knows what happens in the future. I wonder if there's like some sort of understanding or like contract between the two of them where Penance is like, don't tell me what inventions are made. Because you'd think that like Amalia would be like, you can just make this thing that's called the amplifier, like it existed in my time, and we could just amplify her voice. But it seems like she allows Penance to make these things like she doesn't tell her how to x-ray the city or that she can or to create the amplifier. It's like she's always thoroughly impressed and enjoy enjoy at seeing what, you know, Penance does create, which I think is really cute.
2: Well, the only, the only pushback I would say against that is the one scene in which we do see Penance learning about the future. We don't see her kind of reticent about it. She's welcoming the knowledge of the future, and she even describes it as a gift from God, uh, or a second gift, knowing what happens, and then she's like, we'll change it all up. And it's a bit depressing that it's a Terminator, Judgment Day, dystopian future, but, you know, we'll, we'll knock a couple dominoes over that creates a whole different thing. And, um, and I, uh, I guess what's just interesting bright-
3: about it, like, yeah, she's very accepting to it, but I guess what's just interesting is that you'd think that at some point, Penance, with this ability, would be like, oh, what other things do you have in the future? And, like, you know, what technology do you have to maybe spark these ideas? But it does seem like pretty organically she is coming up with these ideas hors- herself,
2: Totally, yeah. And Amalia also, Amalia. I I mean, like my 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 theory about it. Just trying to understand the character of Amalia. She doesn't seem like she would be very technologically uh, 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 interested. Maybe she would be a little indifferent. Like um, still using Microsoft Word two thousand three <laughs> or something.
3: Yeah, definitely.
0: <laughs> Is that episode three done? Nothing more interesting.
2: Well, I do. Want, I also wanted to mention that the song at the very end that Mary sings before she gets assassinated, I think initially I compared it to uh, Martin Luther King Jr. because the idea that someone with such a beautiful voice who uses it to help, uh, to give hope and inspiration to the oppressed, and their voice gets taken away for exactly that reason. I maybe would want to tag onto that also Gandhi because I think Gandhi actually uh traveled to London around the same time as this shows happening in, in the Victorian era to become a lawyer which also feels like a parallel to Harriet and uh her boyfriend or fiance Anil so maybe maybe they're classmates or something thought that was a little interesting thing
0: Yeah, I think episode three was more of like a with the whole Mary thing at the end, it just kind of left us on a bit of a a downtrodden bit. But shall I move on to episode four? Are we all good?
1: This episode of The Never's Podcast was written, produced and edited by Matthew Yamanashi at Culture Inject Studios. The intro and outro music was produced by Gilirme Morais. We are more than just a podcast. We're a fan community. You can keep up to date on The Nevers and chat with other fans by visiting hbothenevers.com. You can also follow us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and YouTube. Just search HBO The Nevers, all one word, and click that follow button. The Nevers podcast is not endorsed by Mutant Enemy, Warner Media Entertainment, or any of its subsidiaries, including Home Box Office, HBO, and is intended for entertainment and educational purposes only. The Nevers, and all names, pictures, and audio clips are registered trademarks and or copyrights of their respective copyright holders.